following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Um, title for the message today is uh, How to Pray, and it's um, part one. Uh, what's going to happen is that for the next three weeks, we're going to do a brief mini-series on this topic of prayer. Um, and so what we're going to do is today we're going to look at Luke 11, verses 1 to 4, this what's traditionally been called the Lord's Prayer. And then next week, we're going to look at verses 5 to 13 in this parable of this persistent friend. And then the week after that, we're going to do something that I really try to avoid doing throughout this Luke series. But because uh, I do want to try to stay for a little while in camp on this idea of prayer, we're going to fast forward a little bit and look at Luke 18, verses 1 to 8, the parable of the persistent widow. And so for really the pretty much this next three weeks, our focus is going to be on uh, this topic of prayer. And so our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke 11, verses 1 to 4, and it reads, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we, for ourselves, forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Um, let's bow in a word of prayer, shall we? God, we confess that often we struggle with this issue of prayer, and um, we're not always sure what it is that we ought to say to you, what you want to hear from our lips, even how to come to you and ask for the things that we need in our lives. So we pray that through your word today that you would open up our eyes to understand something a bit deeper about the kind of prayer that pleases you, that you desire to hear from us. And so we just want to offer you this time and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we jump into the actual message, I want to show you a brief clip from a movie uh, that came out a while back, a movie that I'm going to guess probably a significant majority of you have already watched called Meet the Parents. Uh, about this character played by Ben Stiller who goes to meet his, uh, what may very well be his future in-laws. And um, so we're going to go ahead and watch this clip, which uh, is a sort of famous prayer scene that comes out of it. And then we'll go on with the uh, rest of the message. Okay. I don't know if you can identify with his pain. Uh, if you've ever been asked to pray on the spot in a public setting, and struggled to find the right words to say? Um, have you ever fumbled in a prayer, trying to figure out what you're supposed to say in a particular occasion? Um, are you intimidated by just the whole idea of prayer? Back in, when I was in college as a senior, I had an opportunity to be part of a church plant at the University of Illinois called Covenant Fellowship Church. And in that first year of starting formal services in this church plant, uh, one of my jobs was to find people to pray during the first services of the church. It was always interesting. You know, many of these students had not been Christians for all that long. 
And you never quite knew what they were going to say when they actually got up there to pray. So there were some rather interesting surprises. And other students were in an absolute panic when they were asked to pray. And they would just say, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. And so you would have to basically coach them through the prayer, helping them to know what they ought to say when they got up there to the microphone. I think the truth is that many of us struggle with this issue of prayer. Uh, Whether it's done privately or publicly, uh, the struggle is I don't really know what I'm supposed to say to God. I know I'm supposed to say something, but I don't know what he wants me to say exactly or even how to say it. And like Ben Stiller's character in Meet the Parents, I think it's tempting to think that learning to pray basically amounts to learning these holy-sounding words or phrases that are associated with prayers. You know, the more these and vows you say, the better. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we ask of Thee to sanctify us in the Holy Spirit by Thy everlasting covenant, which Thou hast made according to our forefather Abraham, and on and on and on. You know, that that, that is a prayer that God wants to hear. The truth is that there is a learning curve to prayer. But learning and, and learning to pray is a bit like learning a foreign language. But it's not because we have to learn a bunch of spiritual-sounding jargon that impresses God. Uh, it's rather different than that. Eugene Peterson describes it like this. The primary language that we use as we grow up in Christ, which is to say as we practice resurrection, is prayer. Most of our social experience with language takes place with the people who could not care less about our true God, about our true God-given identity, and who have little interest in resurrection. So it is going to take some time and require deliberate attention to acquire fluency in prayer. This language so consistent with who we really are, adequate for saying and listening as we practice resurrection. What Peterson is saying is that before we come to be Christians, we live in a world that is largely in utter uh, disregard of God. And we live among people who are equally blind to God. And so growing up in this world, we speak a certain godless language. But when we come to believe that Jesus is Lord... Everything changes about the way we see ourselves and with the way we see our world around us. And in order to accommodate that new reality, we need a whole new vocabulary, a whole new language of talking about life and about talking about our world. And the argument is that language is learned through prayer, about what it means to describe a world in which God is there, in which He is present in my life. Um, Let me just give you an example. Uh, before you become a follower of Jesus, you very casually speak in the language of luck. Luck, you know? So you say something like, man, I was riding my bike the other day, and I, I came this close to getting hit by this reckless driver. Man, I was lucky, right? It's a very common thing to express something like that. And this expresses a worldview that is largely driven by the, the, the idea that that everything is in this universe is operated by random forces, just impersonal forces. In essence, we could call it dumb luck, you know? So I get lucky, 
And sometimes you get unlucky. But as Christians, you believe that there is a God that is in control of everything. And suddenly, luck, you realize, is not a very biblical concept. And so, what interestingly you find is Christians trying to get that vocabulary out of their system. And we all slip up, don't we? And so you'll, you'll find yourself saying, man, I, that was, I was really lucky. And then you kind of hit yourself and you catch yourself and you feel a bit embarrassed by it. Oh, no, I mean, thank God, you know, or something like that. And you try to undo that statement about luck. You know, this vocabulary doesn't come to us overnight. And we realize by the words that slip out of our mouths or equally the words that we struggle to find when we're doing something like praying that we're all trying to grow out of these old ways of thinking and adopt a whole new language that captures these beliefs that I have about God and Jesus Christ and His reign over my life. And the argument is that the way that we learn to speak this new language of faith is through prayer, through prayer. You know, I got these two texts almost within minutes of each other the other morning. One of them was from Pastor Aram, who used to work here, and saying, uh, please pray for us because Sarah has just been admitted to the hospital to be induced because, uh, you know, she was sort of post-dates. And the other text was from my mother-in-law asking for prayer because at that very moment, my father-in-law was laying on a hospital table in a catheterization lab uh, and turned out that he had a significant blockage in one of his coronary vessels and needed a stent placed. And the question is, what should I say to God when somebody asks for prayer concerning situations like these? What exactly is it that I am asking for? This is what I mean when I say learning the language of prayer. If you hate your job, how should you pray? That God would provide you a different job or that he should change your heart? about your current job? If you're diagnosed with a terminal illness, does God want you to pray for a miraculous healing or strength to endure the challenge that you're faced with? Is it okay for me to pray that Luke's basketball team will win all of their games in the tournament today or at least that he would be scoring a lot of points? Uh, Should I pray about what kind of car that I buy? Which suburb that we ought to move to? This is the learning curve of prayer. You know, before I believed God in God, these decisions were actually rather simple. I just did whatever I wanted to do. It was all about my personal happiness, whatever I wanted out of my life. But now as a Christian, there is this whole other layer of consideration. What is God's will? What is His desire in this situation? What does God want to accomplish through these circumstances? What is his agenda for my life and for the life of others that I care about? Through prayer, we acknowledge God as a vital voice in the conversation of our lives. And this complicates things quite a bit. How now do I ask of God in the light of these things that I'm facing? Again, Eugene Peterson, he writes, We pray when we are meditatively quiet before God. We pray while taking out the garbage. We pray when we are losing our grip and then ask God for help. We pray when we are weeding the garden. We pray when we are asking God to help a friend who is at the end of her rope. 
We pray when we are writing a letter. We pray when we are in conversation with our cynical and bullying boss. We pray with our friends in church. We pray walking down Main Street in the company of strangers. Or as Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. In other words, prayer becomes a continual conversation with God in everything that I do. Dallas Willard puts it like this, I believe the most adequate description of prayer is simply talking to God about what we are doing together. Meaning, whatever is going on in my life, I'm going to talk to God about it. But this is precisely where the confusion arises. What am I supposed to be saying to Him? What am I asking Him to do in these situations? A lot of times, I don't even know where to begin when I talk to God about the situations that matter in my life. Luke, more than any other gospel, highlights the prayer life of Jesus. Over and over again, we're told how Jesus would go away to lonely places to spend long hours, even all night, in these marathon prayer sessions, crying out to his God. And what we know is that on many of these occasions, Jesus would bring his disciples with him. Basically, I think he wanted them to witness his prayer life, to see how he prayed so that they too could learn how to pray. You realize that the lesson was really hard to be taken by them because at least on two recorded occasions, it seems like while Jesus was praying, they were sleeping. And I, I think it was just too much for the disciples. You know, they go, all right, let's go pray on the mountainside. And then Jesus would be crying out. And I think, frankly, a lot of times they would end up taking naps. On one of these occasions then, after these prayer sessions, um, they ask him, they're observing him pray, and they say, how do you pray? You know, often the depiction, the classic depiction of Jesus praying looks something like this, right? Uh, he's got his arms folded and every hair perfectly in place, and he looks so calm and composed, looking up to heaven dignified with this almost otherworldly look in his eyes. But this is really a far cry from the picture of Jesus' prayer life that we actually are given in Scripture. Because in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. Jesus didn't pray as if it was some kind of empty ritual or some kind of obligation. He prayed like his life depended on it, with a passion. And I think that his prayer life really shook his disciples. I think they realized that he had something that they didn't. He knew something that they didn't. And so after one of these prayer sessions, they come to Jesus and they say, teach us to pray like you pray. Because our prayer life doesn't look anything like your prayer life. Teach us how to pray. It's in response to that request that Jesus gave to them what has now famous been, famously been known as the Lord's Prayer. But as many Bible scholars have commented, this is not a, probably the best name to have given it. It probably would have been better if we called it the Disciples' Prayer because it really is a prayer that he gave to us so that we can learn how to pray to God. Well, it begins simply in verse 2 with, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, say, Father. The first comment that I want to make about this is simply that it's important that we address God continually throughout our prayers because it, remind us, it reminds us that we are talking to him. 
The reason why I say this is because it's very easy to confuse prayer with just thinking through the issues in your life, isn't it? And especially if you've ever tried to pray in any kind of extended way, you know how easily prayer basically drifts into just thinking about your life and about problem solving and trying to figure situations out. Uh, And so by addressing God continually in our prayer, it is a reminder that this isn't a problem-solving session. It's not about just meditating or emptying your mind. You are talking to a person. There is this prayer is a conversation with you and God. Well, going further, the fact that Jesus invites us to call God Father is pretty amazing, pretty remarkable. Addressing God as Father reminds us of the intimacy and security that we find in Him. The actual word that is used here uh, is most likely the word Abba in the Aramaic, which is the word that Jesus himself would have used. There are several references in the Old Testament calling God Father, but they are almost all more formal titles to address God's fatherhood over all of Israel. But the word that Jesus actually uses here is a much more personal, intimate address, the kind that a son or daughter would use to address his or her own father. The Jews would have been utterly scandalized by using this title to talk to God. You know, the Jews had such a reverent fear of God that they never even uttered his name. That's why that name Yahweh we, they never said Yahweh. They, would re, they refused to say it. And so even to this very day, we're not really sure how that name is pronounced. Yahweh is just our best guess. Some people think it's pronounced Jehovah or Yehovah. Okay? We don't really know. It's been lost to us in history because the Jews would just never say it. Even to this very day, if you talk with an observant Jew... They won't use the name of God. In fact, what the modern-day Jew would typically refer to God is Hashem. They'll say Hashem. Now, Hashem is not a name for God. Hashem in Hebrew literally means the name. In other words, what they're saying is, you know him. You know the guy that we don't ever say his name. That one. That's the one we're referring to. In stark contrast to this, Jesus invites us to address God in the most intimate way imaginable. He says, you know, when you address him, call him your father. Call him your father. And the way that we address somebody totally defines our relationship with that person. Listen, all of you in this room do matter to me. As your pastor, I care about you. But there are only five people on this earth that call me dad, okay? And when they ask something of me, that's in an entirely different realm than when I'm asked to do something as a pastor. It's interesting, as my kids got older and they started emailing and getting onto social media and stuff, every once in a while they would email me. That shows the modern times, right? Get emails from your kids. But, uh, um, you know, especially my older kids, if they, sometimes they'll email me with like a request. Hey, Dad, uh, could you get this for me or something? And I got to tell you, when I see that Dad on the top of that email, it does something in my heart. I mean... That request gets on the number one top priority list in my list of things to get done. You know, it's that father heart that says, you know, whatever it is that you need, I'll make sure that you're taken care of, that you have whatever you need. And that's, I think, what Jesus is saying to us. 
When you come to God in your moment of need, the first thing that should come out of your lips is, Father, Father. And you know, the truth is, if you've been a Christian for a long time and have uttered countless prayers where you've called God Father, I think there's a sense in which that title no longer holds any meaning for us. It's just, that's what you're supposed to say when you pray. But I really pray that the Holy Spirit would do a work in your heart to freshly remind you of what Jesus intended when he said, call him your father. And let that shape everything else that is going to come out of your mouth and the things that you're going to ask of him. Father, this is what I need. This is my situation. Goes on in verse 2, and he says, pray, Father, hallowed be your name. To hallow something is to hold it in the highest regard. Therefore, to hallow God's name is to remember that God holds a special place unlike anyone else. He alone is God. There is no one like him. Just because we can have that intimacy doesn't mean that we treat him like just anybody else. And the truth is our natural inclination is always to diminish God, to trivialize him, thinking of him less than we ought to. We reduce him to nothing more than a genie in a bottle that we pull out in our moment of need and say, well, this is what I want you to do for me. And so as we begin our prayer, Jesus says, get yourself in the proper footing and remind yourself that the God that you're praying to is God alone. There is no one like him. He is unequaled in creation. He stands above all else. He alone is God. And so let there be that moment of recognition that this is the being to whom you are praying. And then he says, and continuing in verse 2, your kingdom come, your kingdom come. To ask for God's kingdom to come is to ask that his kingly authority be demonstrated in our world and in our lives. In other words, Matthew's gospel actually fills out some details that help us to understand it. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, it says, your kingdom come, and then as an explanatory note, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that heaven is that place in which God's will is perfectly obeyed. And so the prayer, your kingdom come, is just as that is true of heaven, let that be true of earth, of the things that are going on in my life. Let your authority, let your reign, let your rule be demonstrated in power in the things that I'm dealing with in my life. This is a prayer against all of the wrongs that we see in our world today, all the dirty politicians, the child abuse, the pornography, the social injustice, and poverty. It's a prayer against all the wrongs that are directly impacting my life. Maybe you've been wrongfully slandered. Maybe it's you that is being abused by the friendship of another person who is taking advantage of you. To pray your kingdom come is to pray a prayer against these things, these evils that exist in the world. God, let your authority undo these things to right these wrongs. There's even another aspect of this that I think is actually a lot harder for us. To pray your kingdom come is even a prayer against the wrong that is within our own hearts. I think one of the hardest things for us to see is our own contribution to the problems in our lives. But to say your kingdom come is to invite God's authority in our life, even if it means that we are the ones that need to be addressed. Because we are the ones resisting God's will. 
Let your will be done, Lord, even if it means you have to deal with me because I am part of the problem. I am part of the resistance against what you are trying to accomplish in your world. And so what we can see from this list is these are the known evils. These are the things that we can clearly label as wrong. These things that are offenses against God's authority. And so to say your kingdom come is to pray against these things. Lord, undo these evils. Right these wrongs. Correct which is broken. But in the messiness of life, we have to acknowledge that there are also plenty of times when we're not, frankly, sure what the right solution is. I mean, what if there are no innocent victims, but it seems like everyone had a part to play and a a blame for the mess that's been created here? Then what is it for me to pray into this situation? Who should win? Who should prevail? What if God's intention is not to heal, but to use that illness for a deeper purpose? How am I supposed to know when that is the prayer that I'm supposed to offer? What if just as many Christian players want to glorify God on the AFC side as the NFC side in the next Super Bowl? Then which team do I pray for, right? To pray your kingdom come is to pray that even in our uncertainty, we want God in his certainty to act decisively to accomplish his will. Do you understand that? This is also an acknowledgement to say your kingdom come is to say, I don't always know what the answer is. I don't really always know what your ultimate purpose is in these things that are happening, but this is my prayer, God, whatever it may be, even as painful as it may be for me to accept, let that will be done. Not my agenda, but yours. And this isn't an easy prayer to pray. Because in truth, we would much rather be the ones in control. We would much rather tell God what we think ought to happen and then just hope that he would go along with our plan and do what we ask. This is a prayer of trust, acknowledging that even when we don't know what the outcome should be, we are inviting God to have his way in our lives. You see, we're so tempted to jump right to our list of requests These are the things that I'm asking of you, God. But to pray your kingdom come is to take pause and say, God, what is it that you have for my life? What is it that you want to do in my circumstances? To pray your kingdom come is to pray a prayer of surrender, to say, God, you are in control, and I just want to fit in with what you are doing. Scott McKnight says it like this. I don't know about you, But I tend to begin my prayers for others with what I know about them and what they need. Jesus offers another path. We can begin with what he wants for them. And that's what it means to pray, your kingdom come. I don't really, I can't really sort through this mess, God. I don't don't really know what the right answer is here, God. But what I'm asking is, let your will be done in my life. Well, then he goes on in verse 3 and he says, Then pray to your Father, give us each day our daily bread. Give us each day our daily bread. An essential part of prayer is to bring our personal needs to God. In fact, any loving parent would want 
their child to bring his or her concerns to them. And God is no different as our Heavenly Father. He says, I want you to be able to come to me with your personal needs without feeling awkward or embarrassed about it. You can let me know what is really in your heart, what you long for. Dallas Willard puts it like this. God is not a cosmic butler or fix-it man. And the aim of the universe is not to fulfill my desires and needs. On the other hand, I am to pray for what concerns me. And many people have found prayer impossible because they thought they should only pray for wonderful but remote needs they actually had little or no interest in or even knowledge of. In other words, what Willard is saying is that for many of us, our prayer lives have been derailed by this misguided belief that the only kind of prayers that God wants to hear from us, the only kind of prayers that are really worthy are prayers for things like world evangelization or for all the starving kids in Africa, you know? And so we feel embarrassed, even guilty, coming to God with our personal needs when there are so many more important issues, kingdom issues that God cares about Say, who am I to go and bother God with these petty needs? And so as Willard suggests, out of that confusion, we just don't pray at all. Because in truth, I'm just not really there yet to pray about starving kids in Africa. My heart is just not there. He goes on and he says this. Prayer simply dies from efforts to pray about, quote, good things that honestly do not matter to us. The way to get to meaningful prayer for those good things is to start by praying for what we are truly interested in. The circle of our interest will inevitably grow in the largeness of God's love. In other words, your, prayers, your prayer life has to start somewhere. And the place to start, as Willard is suggesting, is probably not world hunger or, global AIDS, or the global AIDS crisis but about the things that really matter to you right now in the immediate situation that you're facing. In other words, what are the things that you actually care about? Bring those needs to God in prayer. Now, some of you may argue hearing, some of you may be bothered by what I'm saying right now, and I think the argument would be, doesn't this just reinforce a self-centered attitude? Um, well, yes, it could if our prayer life never grows beyond this. But as Willard is suggesting, you have to start somewhere. You have to start somewhere in learning how to pray. And so he says, start by praying about the things that are really heavy on your heart, the things that you really care about. And out of that learning process, as you pray about the things that really matter to you, your prayer life will grow as you see God move and act in your life. One, one little caveat here that I think is important for us to understand is the limits that God puts on this request. This is not an open invitation to ask for everything under the sun that you want. What he says is, pray for your daily bread. In other words, the things that you really need. And I think the truth is, so often we confuse our needs and our wants. And there's a real danger that our prayer life becomes nothing more than an expression of our greed. 
And we're in essence just asking God's power to feed our idols, the things that we really are living for. But he says, listen, bring the things that you really need in life to God, and God will take care of those things. You see, when we pray about our immediate needs, we can more easily recognize God's answer and to experience his power. This is one of the reasons why I think as you're early on in growing a prayer life, you need to start with the things that are immediate in front of you. Because those are the things you could actually monitor to see, did God answer this prayer? You know, back in high school, when I was getting this whole missionary calling, I was really convicted that I needed to pray for all the countries around the world. And so I started to pray. I, I had this whole country list. And each day I would pray for like Afghanistan or like Peru. And I would go down the list. And I would just you really be crying out that there would be spiritual breakthrough in these individual countries. And then what I would actually do is I would look at the newspaper. And I would look at those countries to see if anything happened in them. But nothing ever happened as far as I could tell. Uh, there was no major revolution happening in any of the countries. And after, after about like three weeks or four weeks of doing this, I just stopped because I became so discouraged. And I said, you know, nothing's happening after I pray for these countries. This is just the nature of praying for these kind of big issues like global poverty or spiritual revival in an entire country. But you see, when I pray for the physical pain that I'm experiencing right now, I know when God answered that. There's no doubt about it when that pain is relieved. Or when I'm praying for my child who is struggling with night terrors and waking up every night in the middle of the night crying in panic. You know, when we see answers to prayer like this, there is this immediate building of our faith to see God at work in our lives. And so as we mature as disciples and see answers to prayer for these little things, that begins to build confidence that God does answer prayer, and it gives me the boldness to ask the big things, like revival for an entire nation and for the global AIDS crisis. And I can begin to pray those big prayers. You see, before David could kill Goliath, he had to experience God's hand at work saving the sheep that he was caring for. And out of that battlefield as a shepherd, David became a warrior for God because he saw the power of God at work answering his personal needs there in the field when the bear or the lion would attack. And out of that experience with God, he was ready to take on that giant, Goliath. And that is the picture of a growing prayer life that says, God, give me my daily bread. Answer these needs that I have right now. Then he also prays in verse 4, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. In other words, what Jesus is saying is part of your prayer is to be in a constant posture of repentance. And as I pointed out in that Growing in the Gospel series that we covered just a little while ago, the true purpose of our ongoing repentance in the life of the Christian is to be reminded afresh every day how much we need Jesus. In other words, repentance is about getting in touch with the reality that my pride is always running away from. 
It's to realign myself with the gospel, acknowledging that every single day I need His grace in my life. And the connection that Jesus makes is unavoidable. If I pray for that same grace in my life, that all grace also must be extended to the people around me. If I really claim that I've received mercy, I must also give that mercy to the people that I care about. And then lastly, in verse 4, he says, and lead us not into temptation. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that God does not tempt anyone. James chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Well, if this is true, then why does Jesus tell us to pray that God would not lead us to temptation? Again, I think the parallel passage in Matthew helps us to understand more clearly what Jesus is talking about. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, it says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, this last prayer request is for spiritual protection against all the many things in our world that can tear us down. In other words, it's an acknowledgement that I am weak. And of course, God does bring testing in our life to grow our faith and to strengthen us. But the truth is also this, that when I face that evil, there are times when I do fall. There are times when I succumb to that temptation. And so one of the things that we need to pray is, God, protect me from that. Shield me from that. If at all possible, help me to avoid that situation that can tear me down spiritually and bring undue temptation into my life. God, be a shield around me and cover me. I think these last two prayer requests of God's mercy and his protection strike us as something actually kind of wrong. You know, I think for a lot of Christians, we feel like, why do I even have to pray for things like this? Shouldn't this be automatic? I mean, why, why would I need to pray that God shield me from the spiritual battle? Just shouldn't he do that? But this is actually something that we're called to pray about. Because in truth, I think for a lot of us, the only things that we really ask of God are our material needs, what we need physically. But what God says is a key part of your prayer life is not just praying for the things you need physically, but for your spiritual needs that are already promised to us in God's word. But he says, still, you need to ask these things so that you learn how to depend on me for them. Just as God wants us to pray for our physical needs, he also wants us to pray about his spiritual provision for us. Because the truth is, we are in a spiritual battle. And there are evil forces that are very much alive in our world that seek us harm. And so part of learning what it means to be a disciple is learning the life of prayer that we ask for God's sheltering and protecting care of all of the harm that could come our way to ourselves and to our loved ones. And there's a very real danger of living our Christian lives in autopilot, just thinking, well, God is my back. I don't need to worry about that. And we just go through life oblivious to the fact that we are being attacked on many sides, that we are in the midst of a tremendous spiritual battle. And one of the things that God wants us to do is to be actively in prayer about those things, to ask God's protection and care and provision for all of our needs, not just physical, but spiritual. Let's pray.
I just really want to invite you to think about your prayer life right now. And I want to invite you to think about what it's like. Um, you know, do you find that in truth, you're really kind of a prayerless Christian? You don't tend to spend much time um, on your knees crying out to God. And I think for a lot of us, it's this intimidation factor. Um, I just, I don't know really what to say to him. I, I don't know how to pray. And in these brief words, Jesus actually teaches a lot. He says, if you don't know really what to say, use this prayer as a starting point to learn the kind of things that God wants to hear from your heart. And I think in truth for a lot of us, our prayer life is nothing more than a laundry list of all the problems in our life, and we just sort of dump them on God and say, you know, well, fix it for me, you know, uh, give me the things that I want. And Jesus actually teaches us, uh, start by calling God in heaven your Father. Let that be something that soaks in to the very core of your being. It's the God, the Creator, the Almighty Lord. He desires to be Father to you. And let that shape everything that's going to come out of your mouth, the things that you need. Let Him have His rightful place in your heart. Hallowed be your name. God, you are God and there is no other. Let me just sit and be still before you in that knowledge that I come to a God that is more than able to meet my every need. You, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Your kingdom come. God, I've got my agenda. I've got all of these things that I want. I've got needs. But before I even utter one of those needs, I stand still before you. And I say, let your will be done. Let your will be done. Um, even if it's hard for me to accept, even if it's not necessarily the answer that I want, let your kingdom come in my life. Let your authority be expressed in me and in my situation. And then this open invitation of God that says, ask. Ask what is really on your heart. What is it that you so desperately need? You can bring those to me without awkwardness or embarrassment. I want to know what really burdens your heart. And I want you to pour that out to me. Because you have a Father in heaven who delights to give good gifts to his children. So freely ask, freely ask the things that you need. And not only for the physical things, not only for our daily bread, but the unseen things in the spiritual realms. Pray for his mercy to cover over all of your sinfulness. No matter how many times you trip and fail, may his pity for you always be there to pick you back up. Be a shield around me, God. Lord, help me to be protected from all of the evil that surrounds me and all the harm that would come my way. Cover me as a shield about me. This is the way that Christ himself has invited us to enter into this life of prayer. And could I just invite you to pray that prayer in your own heart Maybe there's a certain aspect of this Lord's Prayer 
that is really resonating in your heart right now that you just really want to bring to God. And I want you to, I want to invite you to pray that prayer to Him and just spend a few moments in personal prayer as our worship team comes to lead us in a song of response.